Welcome to the Innovation in Higher Education podcast, where we share the diverse views and perspectives of experts in higher education, innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship from all around the world on topics related to the future of higher education and the future of work in an engaging, fresh, friendly, and very human format. Let's get started. Welcome to a new episode of the Innovation in Higher Education podcast. My name is Iriana Rojas, and as always, I will be your host for today. The topic of today is the future of work and what higher education can and should be doing about it. This is how can higher education and higher education institutions, of course, better prepare for the future of work. And our guests today are perhaps some of the best people to talk to about this topic, because I'm super happy to be here with Nicole Overlay and Emily Omrod. They are both from Deloitte's Future of Work Institute. And I'm sure that anyone who has an interest in the future of work has read Deloitte's reports about the topic. And if you haven't, I highly recommend you to go right after this interview to check on the reports because they are super interesting. Uh, personally, I have used Deloitte's reports for everything, including my master's thesis, my everyday work, and also my content creation. So I will apologize in advance if I am fangirling a bit about this topic because I really, I really like it and I'm really a fan of it. Um, and Nicole and Emily are joining us today from the United States. So let's welcome them. And I'm very happy to have you here. And thanks so much for having us. It's always um, an energizing opportunity. Any chance I get to talk about the future of work and really what it means for all of us as individuals. Um, my name is Nicole Overly. I am a senior manager at Deloitte. I've been at Deloitte for just over a decade. Um, and over half of that time, I have really focused in entirely on the future of work and what it means for organizations really across the public sector and the private sector. Um, and over the past couple of years have found one of the most fulfilling parts of that job to be thinking about what the future of work really means for students mm -hmm. and bringing the perspective that we share, you know, with organizations globally across the public and private sector to those of us who are about to enter the workforce, those of us who are making career transitions, um, and really just, you know, all of us as we think about what it means for us to work and lead in the future of work as it changes in many ways overnight um, and in real time and um, to just help to provide those types of environments um, in which we can explore what meaningful work means to us and build a future of work that's truly that truly works for everyone. Yes. So again, thank you so much for having us. I love talking about the future of work. And <laughs> I think too, you know, given your audience is very international, right? The future of work looks different in different geographies and different countries. And I hopefully we can talk a little bit about that today. Um, but for your listeners, my name is Emily Amrod. Um, I have the pleasure of serving as the program manager for Deloitte's Future of Work Institute, which is our signature micro-credential program designed to help prepare learners all across different careers and journeys for the future of work, help them be more career ready, more career resilient, and foster the human skills every single one of us needs, not just to gain employment, but sustain employment. Um, you know, like Nicole, I said in our human capital practice here in the U.S., um, and have spent my career very much focused on all things workforce and employee experience, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of right. it actually in higher education. So when we talk about the needs of higher ed managers, of leaders. Um, it's a different ballgame than working in other industries, right, for a variety of reasons, which we can get into. And so, again, our institute is for students, but we're also expanding it to really meet the needs of higher ed leadership and managers. And we can we can talk about that today. So, again, thanks for having us. Thank you. And I have to I have to add something here that I mentioned, like, I think it's almost logical that if you talk about the future of work, you have to relate with higher education institutions, like even mm -hmm. with more reason, even it's it's not only logical, but it's the most efficient way, because if you have to think about your students, like people are going out there to the workforce, where do, they, where do these people come from? Where do these people learn what they learn? They learn everything they learn at universities. And who are the people that are teaching them these skills and all these topics? They're the professors and they're, you know, like, so at the end, it just makes sense to work together so that mm -hmm. everyone speaks the yep. same language, so that everyone is in the same line and knowing what the other needs, you know, like on the one side, uh, the industry leaders knowing what higher education, uh, how higher education works to begin with, because it's a whole different, a whole different universe, and then 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 uh, companies and corporates, and on the other side, uh, for higher education managers and professors to understand what the industry leaders and the mm -hmm. industry needs as well from the workforce, right? So I think it has to be 
built, uh, the future of work has to be built in collaboration uh, between, especially between these two uh, parts of society. Of course, governments also have a major role here, but well, let's focus today on <laughs> industry and business to not go so broad. Okay, so first thing first, um, I would like you to tell us a bit about what you're doing in the Future of Work Institute. How, what, is, what are some of your projects maybe you're taking uh, at the moment or what is your scope? Just, I'm all ears. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer that question. So the Future of Work Institute is a micro-credential program we offer um, to organizations both in the U.S. and internationally to better help prepare learners for the future of work. Mm -hmm. So um, those who participate, so let's take an example. Um, you know, we're, We partner with a lot of universities in the U.S., um, so we partner with an institution, help them select the student audience that's going to participate. And then those students go through a two-day boot camp experience, um, really centered on how the future of uh, work is changing the work that we do, the workforce itself, and the workplace, right? We know COVID-19 really accelerated our perspective on the workplaces of the future. Um, and at the end of the experience, students actually graduate with a micro-credential um, that then they can put on their resume and that really certifies, certifies their um, understanding and knowledge of the future of work and that they foster the human skills. Um, so we talk a lot about human skills in the Institute, not soft skills or professional skills, yeah. because inherently they're skills we all have innately and we just, you know, and they're not typically things taught in university, right? You learn them through maybe experiences or hands-on learning. But again, you know, let's say we don't typically teach courses on empathy or logical reasoning or curiosity as an example. So, but at the end of the day, students graduate with a micro-credential um, that can go on their LinkedIn, on their resume. Um, we also equip them to talk about the experience and its value in job interviews and um, in graduate school interviews as an example. So the Institute itself currently, again, is that micro-credential experience. So um, as we expand, I think we're going to start to see more things under that portfolio um, that we're hoping to accomplish. So, uh -huh. And one thing I'll add to that, that, you know, maybe it's just kind of an interesting data point and and a rationale as to why we think the Institute is is an important um, part of this conversation on skills and how skills are changing. You know, I have been talking about the future of work for years. One of the stats that I that I always love to throw out and it always elicits a little bit of a gasp is that 65% of students who are entering elementary school today uh, will grow up to do jobs that don't yet exist. Exactly. And when I mention that, right, what, to whoever the audience may be, the question I often get back is, well, then what, do, what does that mean for what we need to prepare our children with? You know, for mm -hmm. those those in the audience who have children of their own, they ask, you know, what, do, what are the skills that I need to, to help equip my, my children or my students with so that they can be prepared for, in large part, an unknown future? And mm -hmm. What I say back to them is, we need to we need to learn and and identify the ways in which we can actually teach curiosity and continue right. to instill curiosity um, in all of us as lifelong learners because those human skills are core to our work and they're core to how we operate. Um, but technical skills are changing so quickly that if you don't have the human skills, the adaptive mindset, the curiosity to pick up changing technical skills, then that's where I think we see, you know, individuals fall behind when they're actually in the workforce. And, and part of a big part of what we're trying to do with the Institute is um, heighten the focus on those human skills and give students the environment and the um, awareness of them and how they apply in whatever job they may pursue after graduation um, mm -hmm. so that they can they can be better equipped to communicate their story, communicate their value, connect human skills to the work to the workplace and really connect human skills to the work that they do because the work is going to change more and more quickly. Yes. Right. And the other thing, too, is, you know, everyone needs these human skills and they're not they're not traditionally taught. And so even as we, you know, again, I, I mentioned in my introduction, I've done a lot of work helping human resources professionals and leaders in higher education think about how to support their people and in particular support their middle managers. Um, where traditionally, at least in the U.S. Um, higher education setting, there isn't a lot of investment made in leadership development for those individuals. 
And a lot of times where there might be gaps is around human skills, right? It's around how do you, how does empathy manifest in the workplace? How do we help leaders be more adaptable and resilient in the face of change? Um, and how do, you know, how do we just foster that overall portfolio of skills to make everyone stronger? You know, it's not just about the students graduating though, right? If we can get folks sooner, even in primary school, in post-secondary education, the better. But regardless, we should be really fostering them with our whole employee base um, in higher mm-hmm. education. And that's something we're, we're starting to really um, turn our attention to as well. I always find ironic how uh, we have discovered that we need to teach humans how to be humans. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I find it very like, I don't know, it's uh, ironic. There's no a better way to describe it, I guess, like. Uh, because I guess for many years, since as well, our education systems are have been designed um, based on the industrial society, right? The industrial way of working. And it hasn't changed in more than 100 years somehow, yeah. you know, like, I don't know, people didn't realize that the world was changing, the technology was, uh, you know, taking a bigger part and changing everything about our lives and how we live and work. Uh, so in the education system hasn't changed at the same at the same pace than than the workforce and no not even only the workforce but the rest of the rest of our lives you know we are we are mm-hmm. still learning things that uh, were taught almost the same 100 years ago and you know like some of this knowledge is getting a bit obsolete it's been it's been even detrimental I guess for now for sure detrimental for for young professionals who then you know like, are not prepared to to face the needs of the labor market today you know they go out of the university oftentimes maybe in debt because they went into university and they had to pay huge mm-hmm. tuition fees um mm-hmm. hoping to have an, an uh, a roy with it but then at the end they are like okay what happened i didn't nothing that i learned here uh is actually helping me in my everyday work this is i think this is a very normalized problem that 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 has been happening for for more than a decade already because also the future of work is not something new that came last year or that came with covid i mean the future of work comes like more than a decade ago you know and and there were some companies that were already embracing the new ways of working uh, through technology but most of the companies were not you know and this comes from a mentality that comes back again to the industrial society and other ways uh, of doing things where other skills were required. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, something else I also like to always talk about in relation to the future of work is to remind ourselves that we are not in the first industrial revolution. We are in the fourth. When you look, though, at trends of the way in which our society has evolved, the, what really stands out, I think, about, I mean, you could you could argue the future of work has been coming with each of those industrial revolutions. Um, what's what's unique about this moment in time, though, is the pace of that change. And so those industrial revolutions have becoming faster and faster, driving more and more exponential more change in technology and in society. And really, the pandemic shifted so much of that to be almost overnight change when we think about, you know, hybrid work models and some of those kinds of things that I think are very much at the forefront of the future of work discussion right now. Um, but but, you know, when you think about it from that from that lens, what we really are trying to prepare students for is getting acclimated to adjusting to a faster and faster pace of change in technology and technical skills. Um, And to be fair too, you know, how do we, I mean, when we think about the ways in which our educational systems have been set up, how do we, how do we measure in, in really tactical ways, a student's grasp of those core human skills, right? So it's, it's been easier for us to set up those systems in ways where, you know, it's easy to track management Mm -hmm. uh, and, and mastery of technical skills in comparison to those human skills. And those are things that we consider to be innate or core. Um, But I think we're recognizing more and more the importance of a student having mastery of those skills uh, as core to how they pick up technical skills and will continue to evolve them year after year. Yes, true. You're right. Yeah. And, and, and two, it's, it's not just technology that's changing the future of work, right? You know, you, know, Viviana, you mentioned you read a lot of our research at Deloitte. You know, we talk a lot about, yes, there's technology driven um, disruptors, new AI, data, the you know, virtual reality, the omniverse, the metaverse, but also generational differences, right? Yes. In terms of how we work together in the workforce. You know, and what gen- matters most for professionals as well? This has exactly. changed 
Huge, <laughs> huge, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. you know, here in the U.S., right? The Great Resignation, the Great re Realignment, has been huge, and that's not Jen over. <laughs> Jen going and, there. Yeah. and and Gen Z, which is, you know, I believe that 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 gener Gen Z typically starts around 1997. So right now, mm -hmm. Gen Z is starting to enter the workforce over the past mm -hmm. several years. Gen Z has a completely different mindset about how and where we work, right? Exactly. Gen Z considers loyalty at a company to be six months. Mm -hmm. A lot of training programs last longer than six months. Yes. They also statistically will change jobs over 10 times between ages 18 to 34. And right, part of that's because of the gig economy. Um, you know, the, the creator economy as well now is hitting hard. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and 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 two, I think Gen Z and you know, especially Africa is an example, right? Where there's a lot of research that shows Gen Z um, is really supporting gig-based work in, in kind of collaboration platforms for U.S. companies in ex as an example. And that's mm -hmm. a way where they can contribute meaningfully, um, even if they're in, you know, a, a traditional African employer doesn't have the infrastructure for remote work as an example. So. I mentioned that as well, and, and I'll close by saying climate change, right, is, is also a huge factor in the future of work. We recently published a study in um, this fall that said there'll be over 300 million new jobs created as a result of the climate crisis. And we already have 80% of the skill set necessary for those jobs existing in our workforce. But it's a matter of folks really looking at their skill portfolio and thinking about, okay, I have XYZ skill, I need to build this new skill, and then, and then figuring out how to do that, whether that's from their employer, from a credentialing program, or from a degree program, right? And I think we so traditionally think higher ed is the only mechanism by which we can gain learning, and many times it is the right experience. And I think a lot of higher eds are thinking creatively in terms mm -hmm. of how they can approach lifelong learning, but we're not quite there yet. Yes, yes, true. Um, and let's talk a bit about the future of work now, like, because as I, as we were saying in the, like in the backstage of the interview, everyone, uh, usually quotes, uh, this, this phrase of, uh, in 50 years, uh, 70% of words will disappear and stuff. But this is a study from 2018, you know, but then the pandemic came and revolution. <laughs> So what is the, the state of the art of future of work now? How has it changed with the pandemic? What now in 2023, what can we say that the future of work is about and how does it look like? You know, Emily, I'm, I'm sure that you and I both have lots of perspectives we could share on this, for, you know, from across the Deloitte research and, and more broadly. But one thing I think that really stands out to me and Emily already teed it up beautifully in relation to um, really the, the generational preferences, but I think more broadly, just the, the individual experiences of the pandemic and of working in the pandemic, regardless of whether you had a, a job that was able to be performed remotely and you did that. Uh, and, you know, depending on what was happening at your, with your home life in comparison to balancing that in a remote job, or if you weren't able to, to do your work remotely and you had to continue to go in, um, mm -hmm. and, and recognize the the health risks that were coming with that. No matter what type of um, of of job or occupation you had, um, you had a different individual experience with work and life in the pandemic. And I think the Great Resignation, or what we're now calling, what I like to call actually the Great Experiment, which is employers navigating how to provide different types of working environments in this post-pandemic era. This this entire experience has made us all, I think, recognize what we value and what we seek in employment, in our jobs, um, what, what we want to prioritize in terms of the type of work we do uh, and the environments where we work. And I think, I think employers across every industry are trying to identify how to produce better work-life opportunities and more individualized work experiences and, and really respond to the preferences that have come out from their workforce uh, we call it in our Global Human Capital Trends Report, the concept of worker agency, which is at an all-time high, like never before. And, and I think it really produces, hopefully, a future of work that does offer more meaningful and purposeful work opportunities for those who are in the workforce now and for students who are about to enter the workforce. Yes. And we know we know that the generations that are entering the workforce now, as, as we all you know do too, I would hope, seek purpose in our work. Yes. And and we seek opportunities to work with employers who are aligned to our values. And in in my mind, that's the crux of all of this. I mean, that is that is a future of work that is for everyone that it that produces meaningful work. And 
Um, that is very much, you know, adjacent to the technological change that you could say is part of the future of work. I actually think at the core, it's a really positive and exciting and purposeful story um, about the future of work. And it's the type of future of work I hope for. Mm -hmm. uh, so those that would be a little bit of my reaction, Emily, I, I'll, I would love to have you pile onto that. But all suffice to say, I actually think that we are looking towards a much more hopeful and positive future of work if we seize on some of these trends and learn from the pandemic experience as opportunities that we rose, you know, rose to the occasion for and and really learned a lot from. Yeah, completely agree with what Nicole shared. Mm -hmm. A couple of things I'd add. So, so as I mentioned, you know, Deloitte at Deloitte we think about the future of work in almost a triad of work, workforce, and workplace, and. When we really started investing in this topic and starting to do this work with our clients, at first, the focus was heavily on work, right? It was around AI is taking jobs, technology is taking jobs, and how do we mitigate that? Mm -hmm. And I think over time, we've shown that, you know, AI will take some jobs, but but as a result, will create new jobs of yes. humans working alongside technology. Well, then fast forward to COVID, and the whole topic was on the workplace, Every, you know, tons of jobs moved remote. A lot of, you know, employers, um, you know, downsized real estate costs, you know, really started to think about more hoteling options. Higher ed was an industry that was very much behind the times in terms yes. of remote and hybrid work. And it's still an industry that is struggling with this because of the student experience. Mm -hmm. When we think about student facing roles needing to be on campus as much as possible and how do you mitigate for that? Whereas, you know, students, a lot of times they don't feel they need to have their financial aid appointment in person or meet with an advisor in person. And so I think higher ed, it's, it's a great debate that's still ongoing. Um, here in the U.S., you know, the workplace conversation is actually then driving us back to what Nicole just mentioned, which, which is worker agency. So mm -hmm. higher education, especially staff here in the U.S., um, really, I think, was the number one industry that experienced uh, the great resignation at a higher rate right, of folks leaving jobs and, and actually a lot of them leaving the industry overall, right? Having worked in higher education administration for 20 plus years, going in-house to a company or a place that was going to offer them more flexible work. Mm -hmm. What I would say in terms of the future is I actually think we're headed towards kind of a dual focus on work and workforce. And I say that um, kind of piggybacking on our comments earlier around skills. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's going to be a much larger focus placed on your skill portfolio and what you bring to the table in that regard. Um, and, and, and oftentimes that might mean, you know, maybe you don't have a four-year degree or you have some college and then you've gotten some lived experience or work experience. And so um, we at Deloitte do a lot of work um, with, our, with organizations around the skills-based organization. So how can you transform how you think about hiring and focus more on skills than degrees? Uh, and so I think the future of work is going to be very much focused on a skill portfolio and how we can hire for skills. Um, and I think that will result in a more equitable future of work, because unfortunately, the degree requirement for a lot of jobs has kept a lot of folks out of, of meaningful employment. I would also add as well uh, to what you said regarding skills that this rise of entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. like how cool it is to be an entrepreneur now, like how how it has uh, how being in Silicon Valley has positioned itself in like as, as, as something that professionals, especially high skilled professionals that right. are in the tech sector are looking forward to where in these companies really they don't they do not care what what diploma you have, but they care. I mean, of course, some they care, but some, but also others don't care about what diploma you have, but rather at what you can do, you know, and I mm -hmm. think also the creator economy gives another twist to this because brands, huge brands like global brands and companies are now working with creators that, I mean, and you're not going to ask a creator like, hey, what did you study? You know, do you have a master's right. or PhD on this? No, because they're just creating, you know, like uh, they're making the videos and they're, I don't know, creating different digital products. And this is a, this is an industry that is moving millions of, of dollars, you know, like in Europe, well, millions of euros. <laughs> so it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, I mean, and I, I have to add, like I said, a personal experience. So I come from working in corporate. I, before, mm -hmm. before I moved to Europe, back in Peru, I worked in corporate like for seven years. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I was always searching for a company in Peru where I could like I could leave, you know, the future of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could feel it, leave it, and love it. And I didn't find it, so I went. <laughs> I came to Europe, um, and and here I 
switched my 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 scope into being a a, a creator you know like i i i said because i noticed what is the the like the you know the contrast uh between what i earn i mean not only not only economically speaking not only monetarily speaking uh working in a company in contrast in comparison to how it how is it how much i can enjoy and how much i can achieve on my own my computer you know my computer in my brain it's a crazy thing and now this is what i do every day <laughs> i just decided never again to work for a company but rather to work with companies you know and and i think this is a completely different uh, mind changer and game changer uh for professionals and and the future of work is a big part of of all this transition no yep. and you the the creator economy especially when we think about social media tiktok mm -hmm. instagram etc is is something that to this day i still find so mind-boggling right that 17 year olds can make millions and millions of dollars on on TikTok, right? Or on YouTube. Yes. YouTube as well is is you know. I think again, I you know I I am quite a fan of the podcast scene. Listen to a fair amount of um, influencers who happen to have podcasts, and you know I, it's always interesting to hear too to hear the economics behind the creator community and how money is being funneled and how brands right have invested so heavily and really mm -hmm. in these to be their their so-called spokespersons and for some it's led to side hustles or side gigs that are quite lucrative for others right like you it's led to really meaningful full-time work and i think sometimes when we think about higher education and, and students in particular it's interesting right where um helping them explore yes there's so much value to social media and influencer culture but at the same time i think it sometimes very much limits the mindset and scope of what students really want to do for work Yes. A lot of times we'll talk to students. They'll be like, you know, maybe not students, but maybe more in the middle school, high school scene. Right. I want to be an influencer. I want to be a YouTube star. Um, and so, right, balancing that with making sure folks still get meaningful education and skill, mm -hmm. you know, skill balance, because not all of us can be uh, TikTok stars, unfortunately. Um, and also it's hard work. Right. Especially when you're running your own business. It's it's a 24 seven post. When you become a business, it's hard. It's very hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think oftentimes individuals who really are interested in that creative lifestyle or as I say creator lifestyle don't realize that until they get in the game and see how hard it is to be that very successful um, entrepreneur and creator. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways too, it's it, part of the reason it's so hard is because they are, I mean, when we think about how we are staying on top of changing trends in the future of work, I mean, if you're, if you're in the, if you're in the creator mindset, you are constantly having to shift what you're doing and how you're operating in order to to stay ahead of what's coming next at a really micro level, right? And that is that is certainly not easy. That's the same type of thing any organization has to do at a more macro level. But but you know, on an individual level, if you want to stay relevant, that's what you have to do. And it's it's interesting though. You know, one thing I'll come back to that you mentioned that I think is really is really interesting is you know, Viviana, you just told the story of of you looking for certain things in an employer and not being able to find that and striking out on your own to do what you're doing. And you just, you just told the exact same story that, that I was mentioning earlier around your preferences in the future of work and how I do think we're moving towards an, a, a working world where those preferences are just coming to bear a lot more strongly. And they are resulting in, in you being able to find work that is perhaps more flexible or, produces the type of value that's meaningful to you, um, you know, in ways that in ways that I think we previously had maybe been a little bit more constrained by. And, um, and that's, you know, exactly an example of it. And, and I think not only does higher ed have to think about how to adapt in real time to provide students with the skills they need to make those kinds of transitions and also the awareness of their own preferences. Um, but employers are too. Yes. Um, and and employers need to and, and need to recognize that you know that their their workforce or their potential workforce um has strong preferences about the type of work they do and the skills they want to utilize um and that that has to be a better match between work and workforce than before. I have the feeling that a lot of people that are working in talent attraction right now are like clueless. What to, what should I do now? How do I attract this person that knows that with his phone or her phone, they can, you know, just make a living out of it and just make a career of it. <laughs> How should I attract these people? So regarding skills um, and moving away a bit from the creator economy, uh, regarding skills that the industry is right now uh, searching for, 
what is the state of the art now? Like uh, we were we were mentioning human skills and we were mentioning things like empathy, which I think um, I think now more important than ever uh, is this trait, uh, especially after COVID and especially with all this uh, work revolution that I think um, since since now more companies are adopting uh hybrid ways of working and remote work and all this stuff internationalization of professionals uh is way more um uh, i mean it's way more possible now at the moment it's, it, it happens more often than before no so be, because before if you wanted to internationalize uh, you would have to move from your country and settle somewhere else but now you can work from home to in with in, in the company of your dreams and whatever you you hope for no, and how are how are companies responding to this, um, to all these trends? No, the empathy, thing, the in diversity and inclusion that comes also with internationalization, with because you know many people from different cultures working together, coming together in a team, also require a different set of skills. Um, so, what what is happening on this regard? Oh my god! So so it's um. <laughs> It's so interesting you mentioned empathy in particular. So I had the pleasure of facilitating the Institute last week at my alma mater, Vassar College. Mm -hmm. um, and Vassar, so Vassar is a small liberal arts college, of, um, one of the seven sisters, which is a kind of a type of university here in the U.S. that um, formerly was very attached to the Ivy League. So when the Ivy League was all male, each Ivy League university had a sister college. And so Vassar... Um, I should say in the past was Yale's seven sister. Vassar went co-ed in 1969. So now that's that's not as much of a factor. But anyway, so I had the opportunity to facilitate the Institute at Vassar. And one of the things we ask students is, you know, what skill do you think organization, what's the number one skill organizations are hiring for right now? And they said empathy, which I thought was fascinating because I think right in an ideal world, that would be the skill organizations are hiring for. But we all know. I don't think I've ever read a job description that's like, I want an empathetic individual, uh -huh. even though innately, right, we might want someone who um, who has that. And so, you know, it, when we think about empathy manifesting in the workforce, to your point, Viviana, it's, it's, much, it's much more necessary now than ever. And also, right, empathy is different depending on your role, mm -hmm. right? If I'm a CEO, how I am empathetic is going to be different than if, if I'm a middle manager versus if I'm an individual contributor, still True. critical in each of those roles. And so one of the things I've been really thinking about and exploring is, is not just how these human skills are critical, but also how they manifest depending on where we are in, um, in our careers and kind of, are we managing people? Um, you know, how can, especially when we think about empathy in terms of team dynamics and handling conflict, um, one of the things Nicole and I talk a lot about with our clients is how to manage hybrid teams. As silly as that might sound, it is 10 times harder to manage a hybrid team than a fully in-person or a fully remote yes. team. It needs, yeah. you need very intentional management. And so um, in response to your question about empathy, that's what comes to, what, what comes mm -hmm. to mind. And interesting, right? A group of students thought that empathy was the number one skill corporations, yeah. organizations were hiring for. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll add that over half of the skills that employers are recruiting for when you actually look at the data are actually human skills, not technical skills. And I think that's for a number of reasons. One being, I hope, that employers recognize that if they hire primarily for human skills, even if it's for a more technical role or a role that requires technical skills of some type, that having those foundational human skills will help that individual thrive in the job as technical skills evolve. And so... Yeah recognizing that it's a portfolio of both human and technical skills, um, and it should be, um, but recognizing the, the critical importance of those human skills, probably I think more than ever before, because of just the pace of change in technical skills. And I think that's something that often, you know, could be a surprise even to students because they've been, they've been training to make sure that they have a set of core technical skills. Um, it, it, the other thing I'll add just to, to add a little bit more to the hybrid work, you know, perspective, I, I'll, I'll add that our research shows that effective management is the number one thing that makes a hybrid team succeed or fail. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting to Emily's point on managing a team in hybrid. I mean, a big part of what we also talk about at the Institute is how do you serve as a leader, even if you are on a team and you're not leading the team, you can still bring 
uh, a a role as a leader and and have a a leadership position on a team, even if your job title doesn't say supervisor or manager. And we're trying to equip students with that perspective because we recognize that management means a lot of different things than it's ever meant before, especially if you're working in a hybrid environment where it's just not as straightforward to walk up to someone's desk or walk up to someone at your worksite and ask a question or get an answer or collaborate on something or even even you know onboard a new team member, right? Those types of things are just a lot more complex in a hybrid environment. And we recognize how critically important the role of the human and human connection is. Um, and you know, to be honest, many of us who are who have been working in hybrid environments or working remotely, we went remote overnight and we didn't really get a whole lot of training. There was not a whole lot of training yes. incorporated into any kind of degree program or learning at learning environment on how to work in hybrid or remote before the pandemic, because it just was not a big piece of of, of what we did, right? So, uh, and and I think we hear it from students too. It's interesting, you know, in the institute. Um, we get some very, very strong opinions from students about whether they are interested in jobs that allow them to be permanently remote, permanently on site, or some hybrid in the middle. And it's, I think that from, uh, from some, you know, from some individuals who have been at work for a long time and been part of the working world, you know, for decades, I think there's this perception that the generations that are entering the workforce now have, you know, really want more more remote, you know, maybe that's like a, a common generational thing. It actually really isn't. Um, there's a lot of different preferences that students have. And I find, I think at least anecdotally, the reasons for that is because of the different types of learning experiences they had when they were trying to learn remotely in the pandemic and what, you know, how they got set up for that, right? And what that experience was like, how much human connection they were able to form in those types of, of learning environments. And it gave them really strong preferences. So it just, it's really interesting to, to bring it back together on, on the question of hybrid. I think it's one of the things that uh, organizations are grappling with. You know, we mentioned that, that higher eds as organizations themselves are really still grappling with it. But I think for all of us in the workforce, it means different things. It means different things, particularly in terms of the types of skills that we need. And even more so if we are in any type of role that that where you're working with a team or you're a manager of the team, because if you don't have those human skills, it it just makes it so much more difficult for a sustainable hybrid environment to function well. True, true. Now, I would like to talk about data since you mentioned things about data. Um, Based on the data that the institute has uh, gathered, so what are the key skills that are that employers are looking now, uh, looking for now, and uh, what are the key um, work traits or uh, workplace traits that students are searching for right now? So I'm guessing flexibility is right there uh, on top, <laughs> and also human connection. I'm guessing uh, this, but this is my best guess. Um, so based on the data that you have uh, gathered, uh, what is the what are these skills that are being sent after and what are the requirements? Uh, what are the demands of the students? Because now the students also have the lead, you know? This is something that has well changed to before from before because before you were like, please, can I work for you? And I was like, mm, I don't know. I'm going to see if I work with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, well, I would say it really depends on the student you're talking about, right? So, um, and yeah. again, I'm going to categorize this in kind of U.S. university terms. I know every kind of country has different structures yes. but right we have private and public universities in the u.s okay. um as as well as um community colleges also within that private um echelon right there's small liberal arts colleges there's hbcus historically black um institutions and so i think it really depends on the type of institution the student goes to and the major that mm -hmm. they have that drives yeah. what their That's kind of preferences true. are yeah. um so as an example right so if, I'll bring it back to Vassar because it's it's fresh in my head. Vassar, small liberal arts college. Um, you know, not we do have some, there are some students at Vassar who are seeking to enter the corporate world, but not a ton. Um, almost every student I met with last week, it was a group of 41, said they wanted fully in-person work, which is very mm -hmm. interesting. Now you take that to maybe students in a business school environment at a large public institution, you're probably going to see a larger split between hybrid, remote, and in-person, um, and also where, and also probably see compensation being a larger factor in, in, in terms of worker preference. 
Um, and again, in my experience at Vassar, heavy amount of students were very much focused on purpose-driven work as their number one consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think too, flexibility um, right, ha- is a big umbrella and can change as you kind of go through your career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of was joking on the side, right? As those students who might, might want fully in-person work, right? That might change once their life circumstances change. If they, yeah. um, they become parents, this will change. Want to become <laughs> parent, right? Like, yes, exactly. It, it, um, and, and then in terms of skills that are being hired for, um, I think, right, it depends on the industry, though. You know, obviously that that human skill portfolio, I think, is critical. You know, six out of the 10. Um, it's transversal, right? I would say the human skills is transversal. Whereas, it's, it's, you know, very transferable, universal. Other skills I would say are top right now, product management, mm-hmm. uh, project management. So two different things, though they are connected. Mm-hmm. Um as well as I think a plethora of different coding and technological skills um, are, um, especially, and I'll close with in that vein, cybersecurity skills are heavily mm-hmm. on the rise. Those certifications are critical. I see more and more schools, not just graduating individuals with risk management or cybersecurity experience, but also getting them certified before they even graduate mm-hmm. because of right as our technology um, increases in terms of how it interacts with us on a day-to-day basis. So does that cybersecurity risk. And so um, organizations are uh, heavily investing in the cyber workforce. Um, I would say in our day-to-day, Nicole and I also spend a lot of time in the workforce development space in the U.S. So thinking more about just job creation and meaningful employment for folks, you know, regardless of degree or um, background. And um, I think cyber advanced manufacturing and, and healthcare are like the three biggest industries in the U.S. that are looking for um, you know, uh, employees right now. And so I would just say, again, those are the skills, at least in my mind, um, our, our work with the Institute has shown our, our top right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have something to add, Nicole, or uh, Emily already mentioned a lot? <laughs> yeah, the, I, the only other thing I would just um, bring us back to, because I know Emily mentioned it earlier, and I don't necessarily know that I would say employers are necessarily looking to fill these jobs yet. Um, mm-hmm. And we're trying, I think, to think about what the skills portfolio looks like for them. But you know the rise of green jobs uh, and what mm-hmm. oh my god will look like. So, this, is our, this is the next cute thing, I think. This is the next it, it is, and I'll add. I think that we are hearing from students and a, a really high amount of interest in those types of careers and and a desire to understand the types of skills that will will set them up um, for careers in that space. And and again, I mean, it's just it's moving so fast and it's so nascent in terms of um, what that will what, what that will end up looking like from a true you know job opportunity perspective for students who are graduating right now, but I think that there's uh, a remarkable amount of interest in it. So that's the only last sort of portfolio of skills that I might add that I think there's interest on both sides, uh, employer and and student. Yes. Uh, Regarding what you mentioned about uh, the green jobs and sustainability skills, I think this is, I have to, at least from from my perspective, this is a great thing uh, about the the woke culture. James said, call it because now people are really are. I mean, people are getting worried about the important things, you know. Like, but unfortunately, we had to wait until the until the planet is kind of burning and drying <laughs> to realize that oh, it might be good if we are more sustainable in what we do. But it's good because this this younger generation is pretty much aware of it, and they 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 buy the problem, you know. They buy the problem, and they're willing to uh, focus a career that is meaningful and that is not only meaningful for them, but it's meaningful for society. And they're, they're not only looking, yeah. I, I really see a shift because on the I, most of my content, especially in TikTok, uh, is uh, focused on early talent and young professionals. So I really see the interest in these people on, on sustainability and, and, and sustainability jobs and green jobs. Um, and I really, really think that companies in general and as well higher education should be pushing. They are doing it. They are pushing it. But I don't know if it's strong enough or I don't know if it's if fast enough. I really don't know because as well, we have to say, um, economically speaking, I mean, money, money wise, <laughs> sustainability is not the most efficient way to go. But, you know, then we have to decide we're in a, in a point in which we have to decide, I mean, do we have to, do we want to go to the easy way or do we want to go in the right way? You know, so I think this is some food for thought for industry leaders as well. 
Yeah, and, and I'll just add as an example, right? Every major car company is heavily investing in um, electric cars, right? I think everyone's like the electric truck, the the hybrid, um, which is really exciting. But I will say, you know, the inf- there's so much in terms of how we work together in the future of work that comes with sustainability, right? Before, if you were, you know, an environmental studies major and you wanted to work in a sustainable career, if you know, you became a sustainability coordinator at a corporation or you went to work for an environmental policy fund, or maybe you worked in environmental law as an example, mm-hmm. right? Where your job was very much tied to sustainability. Nowadays, it's much more, I think it's becoming much more saturated in our work culture. And especially when we think about, um, you know, the energy industry, cars, right? a lot of just the functions we do in day-to-day life, it's becoming a bigger part of it. And so, you know, as an example, right here in the U.S., the, our government just invested a lot of money into our, our infrastructure bills to um, better support the electrical infrastructure in the U.S. Because if you have a green car, uh, an electric vehicle, at least where I live outside of Philadelphia, um, there's not a lot of fast chargers around in terms of, you know, just being able to use that car effectively um, and still and have a similar experience to driving a, ga- a, a gas-driven car. And so, right, that that requires us to have met many more electrical engineers trained um, where maybe they wouldn't see their jobs or their work as sustainable or green, but it's critical to the, the success of, um, you know, having more green, uh, you know, electric cars on the road um, in the U.S. And, you know, I think Elon Musk in the U.S. has, um, you know, that's why his you know, Tesla heavily invested in so many, so many, um, you know, of their own chargers and they're all over the U.S. But just one example of a of a job, right, that I wouldn't necessarily deem as a green job, but is critical for the success of the green economy. Mm-hmm. Another thing I'll add to to um, to go back to perhaps the the student perspective on um, the importance of some of these commitments that employers may make in relation to climate and sustainability, perhaps in um, in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and accessibility um, in the workplace. One of the things that we uh, encourage students to think about, and we give them some space to explore in the institute experience, is how do you really define and articulate your values and what you seek in an employer? And actually throughout the interview process, um, ask the right questions of an employer to make sure that even if you're not necessarily going into a job in one of those realms, that you actually really understand and align your employer to your values um, mm-hmm. and, and ask the right questions to make sure that if if a potential employer's commitment to climate and sustainability is is something that is a really core value of yours and will will support your workforce experience and and your happiness in working for that employer that you ask those questions when you're considering the job um and and I think that's an important piece of this too because it it all comes back I mean that I think continues to reinforce the message to employers um, about the types of commitments they that they need to be making in order to produce these broader uh, societal changes that we that we want to see. Um, but I also think, you know, it helps to empower individual students as they're thinking about um, their, you know, their their time in the workforce um, and how to make sure that they really are just really armed with the types of understanding about really what their employers are doing, even if it doesn't mean that they're going into a job specifically that we would consider to be a green job. Yeah, agreed. And now I want to take all these things that we have been discussing, you know, all these trends and all these uh, new skills requirements um, that we have been discussing that comes from uh, the side of the students and as well from the side of the industry. And I will ask, what can higher education institutions do about it? Or what are they doing about it? Uh, and if they're not doing much, what can they do about it? How can, how can we uh, surf this wave of change better? I mean, and I say we because I, I mean, I, I, I did a master's in, uh, in higher education management and innovation in higher education. So I'm pretty involved in, in, in this topic from the academic perspective, from a higher education perspective. So what can we do about it? <laughs> I think we're seeing a lot, an increasing amount, and I think we're going to see more um, more opportunities for higher ed to be thinking with the same type of adaptive mindset in terms of the credentials and the skills that they are trying to build in students throughout the course of lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hope we continue to see that because I think it's going to actually help increase the uh, enrollment in higher ed um, mm-hmm 
in much more, you know, diverse and I think, you know, lifelong ways than we've seen to date. I actually think it's a huge opportunity in a really positive way. You know, I like to say every challenge presents an opportunity. I think it's a challenging moment in some ways for higher ed, but I think it's a real opportunity to, you know, in some cases, maybe fundamentally, fundamentally change some of the, the ways of operating that, that higher ed has been used to in the past to seize the moment um, in relation to some of these new and emerging skills um, with a focus on particular industries that are going to be adapting really quickly to, you know, the green economy, to other things um, that we see on the horizon. And I think that's going to be, you know, honestly, a really, a really exciting moment for higher ed if, if it can be managed in the right way. And I'm sure that we're going to see um, tension in how exactly that happens. But I think there's also a huge amount of opportunity to do some higher ed and industry collaboration. I, I see the Institute as, as a part of that or as an example of that. I think our higher ed partners do as well. Um, but I think there are a lot more modalities and a lot more examples that are going to uh, come up and already have already um, to support that. Emily, what would you what would you add there? I would say higher ed needs to fully embrace the future of work overall, not just for its students, which is the critical piece Nicole just mentioned. And, and the way to do that is, is to take the career preparedness and development journey out of career services and make it a priority of every single student facing department, right? Faculty need to care about students getting meaningful employment after graduation. I will tell you a lot of faculty members don't see that as their job and it, it, it is their job. Oh my God. It's critical. Um, so I would say obviously future of work for students, but also just for universities, right? Higher eds need to critically take a look at hybrid and remote work as a way to keep staff, especially given, um, you know, traditionally higher eds pay um, less than other industries, right? There And that whole value proposition of the culture on campus and community, you know, that we lost a lot of that during COVID. And I think, right, their universities really need to focus on that. And, and also just the future of the work they're doing, right? A lot of higher eds, you know, are, are, finally, it's like 25 years after uh, corporations and, and other organizations are embracing cloud technology, are embracing, um, you know, different ways of working. And I think um, really thinking critically about how that affects your staff and the skills that they bring to the table is really critical. Um, and so I would just say overall, you know, the future of work is for everyone and higher ed needs to get on, get in the game um, where they're, they'll be missing a large portion of a really fabulous workforce. Yeah, def I agree with you. And I have to say, so I've, I've made some research about it. Uh, and so one of the biggest factor of, of this, uh, I don't know, resistance to change and all these things that we're seeing within higher ed is uh, the academic culture. So academic art culture is very traditional. Um, and I was someone coming from industry because I came from industry. I didn't, I wasn't born in academia. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a shifter. Um, as someone coming from industry, for me, it was very surprising to notice or to learn that for, for traditional universities, the most important thing is not the student, but it's the research, uh, yeah. research production. And I was like, what? Because I, I, I came, you know, to academia with this user-centered mindset, you know, coming from corporate, user-centered mindset and people-centered and, but the, and, and what the reality that I saw that is, and this is rooted in the in in the in the soul of academia. You know, it's it's academic culture is focused on research. It's shifting, it's changing, but it's it's not um, it's not a huge it's not the huge revolution I think it should be at least. Um, but yeah, we are, we are taking steps towards it, uh, but still there's a big a, a big um, resistance to 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 the change and to to. And, and they also have um, this um, thought or, or thinking of, you know, I don't want to do a job. I, I don't want to work for the market or I don't want to marketize the content. You know, there's at mm -hmm. least in, in the, I studied Peruvian universities and there's was there was this common thought between among academics and faculty leaders that if you are teaching your students or if you're conducting your teaching uh, in a market oriented way, then you are selling yourself. <laughs> You know, you go against the thought of, of what knowledge should be or, or or what for knowledge should be, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I mean, we could talk for hours about the research. I, I, I believe that we can talk for um, hours. 
<laughs> and um, so I'm glad you bring it up because it's another factor of higher ed and, 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 and what's, you know, that even right higher ed, higher ed's research arm has a completely different workforce set and they have different needs and it, you know, exactly. and different, skills happily, you know well. different skills, different yeah. personality traits and all this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. But now there's also a huge trend about how to actually transfer the research skills to be more marketable. So, I mean, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a nice, very interesting, um, I don't know, like Bermuda Triangle <laughs> in higher education that uh, is mixing best of both worlds, you know? It's mixing, uh, for on one side, all the part of research, and as well, it's mixing business skills. And they are mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to how to make it work you know how to how to change because also as we mentioned before uh not all professionals and not all students have the same abilities they don't have to i mean and they not everyone can be a creator not everyone can be a techie you know there are skills for uh for each one for 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 each person what better fits them works but i think this mixture of skills this this um multidisciplinarity of skills right now it's it's getting more and more important and uh, it is also happening for for higher education so looking into the future because uh we as you said we can talk about this for hours but i, I think we already are one hour here um how does the future look like so will universities as we, as we know them now be still relevant for the future of work what what would happen if they don't change um how do you foresee this? Or what the data says about it? So first of all, I, I hate to envision a future where higher ed has not evolved in ways to continue to stay relevant yes. because I think the role that higher ed plays is critical. And yes. I couldn't I imagine, do believe. I do believe. I couldn't imagine a world in which in which that is not the case, you know, just very fundamentally. And so I think that's the first the first thing that I would say. I do think though that like like we said before, I think it's an opportunity to evolve. And I think in order to stay relevant, I do think that evolution is going to be critical. And, and you know, and Emily said it too. Um, but I, I at least hope, I mean, I'd like to see a, uh, maybe I'm <laughs> overly optimistic, but I really choose to envision a future where there's just, I think, across the ecosystem of higher ed and employers um, and you know, individual learners, um, not necessarily just students who are in traditional college degree programs right now, I really choose to envision a future where there's much more dynamic interaction um, between every member of that ecosystem on an ongoing basis throughout when an, the time while an individual is being prepared for their career and then throughout the career itself, just because, you know, we said it before, we know how quickly individuals are going to be changing careers. We already see that. Um, and I think just with that comes an unprecedented need for, for a focus on lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And if higher ed is not the linchpin to that conversation in partnership with the ecosystem in ways that, that perhaps, you know, that partnership has not existed in the past. Um, I think that it will be, I, I couldn't imagine what that future would look like. And so mm -hmm. I, I certainly see higher ed still playing, you know, very much of the role that that it has from a career preparedness perspective i think that, that just the ways in which the delivery of that role is occurring and when um are going to be fundamentally shifting and it's you know it's all in it's in response to what's happening more at the macro level um mm -hmm. but again i think it's also to take advantage of the opportunity to evolve to really meet the the education market um and and support learners um and that's really the, the purpose of higher ed to begin with, right? I mean, we all come back to, to lifelong learning and, and to, to learning um, in the flow of work and career and um, in order to be prepared for that. So that's what I would say. Agree. Do you, yeah. Emily? I echo Nicole's sentiments and I would just say, at least here in the U.S., right, we, we have an enrollment cliff that is coming pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, and also with the uh, student loan crisis, right, a lot yes. of folks are are choosing not to pursue higher education due to the burden of the cost. And, and so I think higher ed is going to need to get creative for the sake of its own survival. And I, I'm hopeful that it will rise to the occasion. And I think a big part of making it higher ed a sustainable model is better uh, connecting for employers and higher eds to be better connected in terms of filling yes. that skills gap, 
and helping you know prepare their learners, their students for the workforce. It's real-time conversations around skills, what skills are needed, what gaps there are. Mm-hmm. Honestly, how students who are leaving higher ed, this is something I think that doesn't even, I'll just close with this thought. I don't think it happens enough, you know, having an open dialogue around how how prepared students actually end up being when they start a new job um, and thinking about getting that feedback even back to the higher eds that prepared them for those jobs so that some of the, the ways in which they are getting prepared, whether that's part of their actual you know, the, the, the degree program that they're in or what their career services office provides, you know, that like real time feedback, those loops are not happening to the extent that I think that they really could to be mutually beneficial in all regards. It's beneficial for the employer who hires the student. It's beneficial for higher ed uh, that's, that's preparing the student too. So. And I think that's a new task uh, for us professionals that are working in intersection of higher ed and the workforce to try somehow to facilitate these connections and these collaborations that are not completely happening at the moment due to many reasons, right? Like there as well, there is a huge line of study and research on how to make higher education institutions collaborate more with the industry, you know? What kind of skills should we develop in higher education managers? And, you know, uh, so so that, and, and also in industry leaders so that they can both talk and have a conversation and communicate yeah. you know yeah. you know, for me it's yeah. also crazy how how it can be so hard to talk to each other it's yeah. like you just send a whatsapp message i don't know but yeah uh again this is a huge a huge topic to talk about maybe we can i think we can actually should do a number two talking about <laughs> talking about uh specific topics on change management within higher education maybe this would be very interesting yeah. Um, but I would like to close with something. At the beginning, at the very beginning of the interview, you mentioned that the future of work looks different in different regions of the world. So mm-hmm. I would like to get some insights from you on on the particularities, the particularities of each region, and what what can you share with us uh, about about the difference uh, among regions regarding the future of work? So I so I have a couple thoughts to share. Um... And I think this is also very much tied again to the global human capital trends report we released last week. So in, um, we're in mid-January. So it's out. And Nicole t- talked earlier about worker agency, which I think is a big topic here in the U.S. Um, one thing I'll say, you know, right when we think about the, um, you know, in the U.S., right, our benefits, our healthcare benefits are tied to um, employment for the most part in terms of how we operate. Um, one interesting trend on the future of work, especially in, um, you, know, you know, parts of Western Europe that really um, are quite evolved in how they think about maternity leave, family leave, healthcare, is because the, their future of work, their benefits are not tied to their employment. They're quite, they're much more malleable in how they organ, um, organize and work as, as different corporations and organizations. And so I think that's a trend we're seeing, um, particularly in some of the Nordic countries um, mm-hmm. in Europe, uh, where, they, where they're able to try out different, you know, the four-day work week, different flexible schedules, yes. um, because again, there aren't all these laws tied to that you have to work a certain amount of hours a week to get benefits, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, other interesting interesting trend, you know, in Africa, right, is there is not a lot of infrastructure for hybrid and remote work, just based on you know, technology and access to um, you know, different technologies needed to work from home. And so interestingly enough, Africa has seen a huge shift in the future of work in terms of um, especially younger people working um, more in the gig economy and working on these kind of crowdsourcing platforms, supporting a lot of times clients in, in North America. Uh, in, in terms of projects and things that they have. And they're able to do so in a meaningful way, even if they can't work for a company or organization based in Africa, that allows for hybrid or remote work because of just you know, infrastructure challenges. So um, again, two examples. Um, I'm sure we could talk for hours about those. Um, and I don't know if Nicole has anything to add. I have to ask about Latin America. What's happening in Latin America? Do you have information or data about Latin America? Off the top of our heads, I'm not sure how much. So, so I don't know how much we specifically have about Latin America um, in the back of our heads, but we uh-huh. there is quite a bit of research that underpins the Human Capital Trends Report, so we can mm-hmm. send that over to you. And I'll I will, no, I will check it out after after the interview yeah. for sure. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, now uh, to close the interview. Now, indeed, to close the interview because I'm closing the interview for a half an hour, I think. Um, 
so how so you, you mentioned that in the future of work institute you work with students so how can students mm -hmm. reach out to you and how, how does your programs work how does this micro credential look like at the end so if students are interested or universities are interested, they can reach out to us directly. Um, mm -hmm. we, we typically partner with individual institutions and deliver okay. it then to their students. So it's not a individual student signed up and then participates um, type okay. of program. So um, is it online? Is it um, or so, so the program is, is um, can be done virtually or in person. It's synchronous. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you, again, if, if, if any, anyone listening is interested, please feel free to reach out um, to us. Okay. Great. Um, and, LinkedIn or connect via LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Yes. Yeah, right. So, but this, just to have it clear, this works at um, at the institutional level. So it's institutions, higher education institutions contact you and then mm -hmm. you work there. You don't work in a, in a B2C uh, no. thing. Okay. Okay. No. That's okay. And I should say too, we, we don't just work with higher eds, right? We work with really organizations of all types. And so if you're listening and if you don't work at a university, but you work at an organization who's really interested in preparing your employees for the future of work, we yep. would love to talk because that's something we, we're also heavily investing in. Great. Well, Garth, it's been really great to talk to you and to meet you. I'm really happy that we had this conversation and I um, I will repeat my invitation <laughs> of making another episode because I, I really think we should we can talk about this for hours and this is a this is a topic that is so exciting i don't know how more people are not excited about it it's super exciting to see how, how how work is changing because if you think about it like work is such an important part of everyone's life like yeah. how can you not care <laughs> you know how can you not be interested in it or, or 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 try to see what's the future gonna look like it's it's uh, it's amazing i love it yeah, um, really looking forward uh, to 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 keep our conversation. Uh, but I will close this interview here. I don't know if you have some final remarks, some final thoughts for for the listeners. The only thing I would say is, um, thank, first of all, thank you for having us. Uh, yeah. It's been a pleasure to it's been a pleasure to be part of this dialogue, as it always is. And we really, I mean, echo what you said. We could talk about this for hours, um, and always, I think, really just get energy out of it. Um, very much driven by by building the future of meaningful work um, and would love to be part of any ongoing dialogue on the topic but but really just more broadly if there was any parting parting words that i would share with everyone just continue to be curious i think there's a lot of excitement um, in the world of of work right now and uh, i think if if all of us can be excited about change and um, be curious about what's coming next. I think we will be much better prepared to um, embrace change with open arms. And, and that's what so much of this is really all about. And so um, my parting words would just to be, be to stay curious. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Higher Education podcast. Follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter to not miss any episode. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok as at Innovation in Higher Ed. Cheers.